0: Hear now the word of God from John chapter 16, verses 4 through 7. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here ends the reading. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I I ask that you'll prepare our hearts um, as we approach Christmas in less than a week. One of the great celebrations where we celebrate that you became a baby. And there's a great mystery in that. The I am, the creator, the word of life, coming as a fragile, fragile, Vulnerable baby entering into our existence, into our experience. I pray that our celebration will be filled with joy and reverence. Um, and this morning, as we look at the mystery of your spirit in this season of waiting, may you open our hearts to what it is your calling us to be and to do. Open our hearts to the truth of your spirit indwelling us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. Pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, Jesus makes some pretty startling claims in the passage we just heard in John 16. Uh, in, in, In the Gospel of John, he's preparing his disciples again for his crucifixion and resurrection. There's a kind of extended series of teaching, very similar to what we're in in Luke, actually, and he's preparing them for his absence and he says something pretty shocking. I'm going to read it because maybe you just heard it and didn't fully think about what it means. But in verse seven, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, it's better that I go. We've got to pause for a moment. And Okay, the Lord of life, the incarnate Son of God, and he's saying there's something better it almost sounds blasphemous. It's like, well, I thought nothing's supposed to be better than Jesus. And what could have been better? I mean, you know, what could have been better to actually have sat at the feet of Christ, to have heard his teachings, to be in the presence of the mystery of the incarnation? Like, it just doesn't, as a Christian, it's hard for you to imagine something better than that. Yet Jesus says, it's better that I go. Now, there are two ways that Jesus could have made that statement. The first is the kind that we make when we're breaking up with someone, if you remember back in the days when you were dating and you tell them, you know what? I think this is actually for the better because now we can focus on other things in life and, and the person who's being broken up with is thinking, yeah, but is it really better? Like, my heart's broken. This isn't better. Could be that Jesus is just trying to kind of put a good spin on a bad situation. He's going to leave. He's like, well, you know, it's, it's better this way. That's one way we could hear Jesus' statement. The other way is to take him at his word that somehow there is something better than having actually sat at the feet of Jesus. And the thing that's better is what Jesus calls the helper, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it's better that he goes, because only then will he be able to send us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is, in fact, more advantageous for us, better for us, than the actual presence of the incarnate Son of God. Now we're in this Advent series where we're focusing on Christ's second Advent, his second coming, and and the waiting that we experience as we wait for Christ to come back. We've looked at realities that we experience in that waiting, we looked at the mystery of God's providence, last week we looked at the mystery of suffering, and today we're going to look at the mystery of God's spirit. And this is a needed topic in our church circles, because again, unless you come from a charismatic background... The Spirit isn't talked about a whole lot. Um, I graduated from Southern Seminary with a three-year degree and I think we only talked about the Holy Spirit in one class and that was because the professor was really somewhat of a closet charismatic himself. But, you know, I made it through 100 hours of credits and not talking about the Spirit. And that's problematic because theologically speaking, the main actor, the main divine agent that we encounter in this waiting period is actually the Holy Spirit. The Father is the creator, the one who sent the Son. Christ came, was incarnate. Uh, Died and rose again for our sins but he now sits at the right hand of the Father and the Father and the Son send us their spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that we engage with the most in this waiting period and so the fact that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit that we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit that's kind of a problem. You could say that we live in the age of the Spirit, and so it's good to take a sermon and just discuss the mystery of the Spirit. And in keeping in kind of how I've structured the previous Advent sermons, we look at three truths about the mystery of the Spirit. The first is that we have the Spirit. The second truth is that we can be filled with more of the Spirit. And the third truth is that we will always need renewal by the Spirit. So our first point, we have the Spirit. Now, In order to kind of lay out and help us understand why, when Jesus says it is better that I go, why he's not speaking tongue-in-cheek but speaking literally, we're going to have to understand a certain theological concept or a theological category. This is called the creator-creature distinction. This is typically what scholars use to refer to this. But all this is getting at is that God is not the same as us. God is not somehow, like you think of the best of humanity times a million, and that's God. That's not how it works. There is a categorical difference between who we are as the created and the creator. He's drastically different from us. And so to give some examples of ways we're different, for instance, you and I, we are contingent. That means that we do not have to exist For every single one of us, if our mothers had had a stomach bug the night we were conceived, we would not be here. We exist because of the lack of a stomach bug. But God is necessary. Because of who He is, philosophers have argued that God, He could not but exist. There is no universe in which God could not exist. We are finite. There's an end to me. I, I don't extend very far. There's an end to my knowledge. There's an end to my life. But God is infinite. He's everywhere. He knows all things. There's no limit to his power. We are temporary. The psalmist often refers to our life as like a morning mist that goes away by the afternoon sun. But God is eternal. Before time was, he existed. We are changing, right? Like you will grow and develop who you were 20 years ago if you were alive at that time. Uh, is not who you are now and who you will be in 20 years is not who you are now. You'll, you'll learn things, you'll grow, you'll develop, but God stays the same. He is ever unchanging. We are not like God. There's a cr- creator-creature distinction. And when we look at the worship regulations in the Old Testament, that is what they're pointing at. There was very strict prohibitions about how they could approach God because God is not like us. I can go up to any human and say, hey, man, what's up? How you doing? This is great. There's, but there's no distinction between us. Now, grant, if you're the president of the United States, well, there's a distinction, and I can't go up and do that. And if you're God, how much more so? So there's always prohibitions of there was, a, there was a tabernacle, and only priests could enter the tabernacle. And the holy of the holies were only a high priest once a year didn't matter if you were a king. It didn't matter if you were the richest man in Israel. didn't matter if you were the poorest man in Israel. You could not enter his, his presence because there's a distinction between who we are and who God is. We are not the same as God. But then at the same time in the Old Testament, there are promises. And probably the best known one is in Joel chapter two. And so again, keeping this create, creator-creature distinction in mind, listen to this. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. So the God who is fundamentally different from us, who is, as people say, he is other, he is completely different from us, he's gonna come so near to us that he'll be poured out upon us And it won't just be a priest or a high priest or a prophet. It will be your young men and your old men, your sons and your daughters, even the free and the slave. Everyone will experience the outpouring of God's spirit. God will be closer to us than our skin. And in Acts 2, when the apostles go out and they receive the gift of tongues, they begin to preach the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. When the people ask Peter, Why are you saying these things? How can you say these things? How can this be? Peter points to Joel 2. He says, This has begun. The age of the Spirit of God being poured out on people, coming radically close to us, has begun. And so that's the age we live in, the age of the Spirit. And so again, this first truth we're, we're looking at about the Holy Spirit is that if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you have the Spirit of God living in you. The God who is radically different from us, who is our creator, dwells in you. And there are some pretty obvious applications that flow from that beautiful truth. The first is because you have the Holy Spirit. God is never distant from you. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what it seems like. God, again, he is closer to you than your own skin. Again, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, in that text, he's talking both corporately, saying, look, when you gather together, the body of Christ is now the temple where God dwells but he also means individually. Your body, your physical body is a temple. Before, the, God's presence was confined to one place, but now you walk out and you go shopping, the temple of God is going shopping, in a sense. In some ways, we're dealing with things that are beyond our ability to understand here, but God's spirit, his dwelling was within you. It doesn't matter if you're in good times. It doesn't matter if you're in bad times. It doesn't matter if... You're in a time of plenty or a time of want. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, who is our shepherd, He is with you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, first application is God is never distant from you, no matter how you may feel. But, second, because we all have the Spirit, there are no second class Christians. We all have the Spirit. There's a radical equality here. Now, uh, one thing we can thank Pentecostals and Charismatics for is kind of a renewed emphasis on the, on the work of the Holy Spirit. But one way they got it very wrong, at least initially, this has changed, but you look at the beginning of Pentecostalism and the Azusa Street revival in 1905 and kind of the, you know, mer- uh, uh, mish... What's the, anyways, the, the, the main uh, charismatic denomination, CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, was birthed out of that revival. One thing they got very wrong, though, is that they taught that there was a second experience you could have after salvation. So when you trust in Christ, you're forgiven of sins, but then there's a, what they call a the second blessing where you had to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You would then receive the Spirit, receive the gifts, and now you're, you're really on the end. And they actually created two categories of Christians. You had your carnal Christian, someone who's trusted in Christ for forgiveness, but has not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, does not have the Spirit. And then you have your spiritual Christians, who are the ones who've actually been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And in effect, they created categories, distinctions within Christians. You have first-class Christians and second-class Christians. But that's a misreading of Scripture. Because 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that all who are in Christ have been baptized in the Spirit. If your faith has been placed in Christ, you have been baptized in his Holy Spirit. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Again, if your faith is in place in Christ, if you are Christ's, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a radical equality. What that means is that there is no one in this church who is more important or more valuable than anyone else. Look, I'm your senior pastor. But more fundamental to our relationship is that I'm your brother in Christ and we will worship Christ together in eternity one day, not as me as your pastor, but me as your brother in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're the senior pastor of Southeast Christian Church. You are no more important than the person who takes out the trash. Because we all have the same spirit. We have one spirit. There is a radical equality in the body of Christ. Now, of course, we all have varying callings, right? Equality doesn't mean uniformity, and praise God for that. Do we really want a church of 50 people who are called to preach? Sounds like miserable experience. You may not know this. Two years ago, I, for two months, handled the, uh, when we, we hired a bookkeeping company and I was a liaison, I was kind of acting as our church treasurer in a way for two months until Mickey kindly put me out of my misery because not all of us are called to be accountants and you don't want me being your church accountant, it's not my gifting. Same time, not everyone's called to preach, not everyone's called to lead in worship, We have varying callings, but you know what? I'm no more important as the preacher than the accountant of our church or than the deacons. None of us are more important. We all have the same spirit. And I want to, just before I finish this, before I finish this first point that you have the spirit, I want to give a side note. This is why member meetings are so important. Because member meetings are a way that we live out in a very visual, very legal, by the way, legally binding way, that we are all equal. We all have the same spirit. Because guess what? It's not like I get two votes. Or it's not like Sean is the chairman of our deacons or a deacon, they get two votes. We all get one vote. My say doesn't matter anything more than anyone else in this church. That's a beautiful thing. And so that's why we should make sure we come to members meetings and we have them. That's the first point. You have the spirit. If you have trusted in Christ, God has drawn near to you and poured himself into you and you have received his spirit. The second point, the second truth we learn about the Holy Spirit, is that nonetheless we can be filled with more of the Spirit, and I think that Pentecostals were getting at something real when they talked about uh, um, the second blessing. They were just they were just talking about it wrongly. They're mischaracterizing it, and that is that we can have um, we can have a greater experience of the Holy Spirit, a great filling of the Holy Spirit. our experience of an empowerment by the Spirit fluctuates. And you've probably experienced this, right? There are times when the Spirit speaks great comfort to your soul, when he empowers you for a special ministry, when you all of a sudden have great faith in the moment of trial. Our experience of an empowerment by the Spirit fluctuates, although we all have the Spirit. We all experience that. And we see this, this is a biblical example that we're given. I'm gonna put a bunch of passages on the screen behind me. But they all point at this, that we can be filled with more of the Spirit, so Acts 4.8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Acts 7.55, But Stephen, again, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Acts 13.9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now I'm taking snapshots, but these are three different Christians who all already have the spirit, but in this moment are experiencing a greater indwelling of the spirit, and as a result, for instance, in the first one, Peter, he then is given courage to proclaim to the religious leaders who want to kill him the truth of Jesus. Or Stephen the martyr is given visions of heaven. Or Paul in Acts 13 is given the power to heal. But the point is, these are already Christians who already have the spirit, but yet the Bible talks about them all of a sudden being filled with more of the spirit. Our experience of our indwelling of the spirit of God can fluctuate. We can be filled with more of the spirit, we can be filled with less of the spirit. If that's the truth, what's the application Seek a greater filling of the Spirit. If we, can, if we can have a greater filling of the Spirit, a greater empowerment for ministry, a more intimate walk with our Lord, we'll then seek it. And that's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 14:1, where he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. He's saying, look, seek a greater filling of the Spirit. Yeah, but How? Okay, so if we, can ha- if we can be more filled or less filled with the Holy Spirit, how do we seek a greater filling of the Holy Spirit? And I have three steps that we can take to do that. First is consecration. Setting ourselves apart for God alone. One of the things that the Bible's clear about is that God will not share us. He will not accept a secondary allegiance. He will not be our co-pilot, despite what all those bumper stickers say. He will be our Lord alone, or he will not be our Lord. And so Paul sums up Romans 1 to 11, which is deep, some intense, some, some dense theological stuff. He sums up all 11 chapters up in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore. He's saying, therefore, in view of all these 11 chapters, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offer yourselves fully as living sacrifices. If we want to be filled by the Spirit, if you want a greater filling of the Spirit, be fully God's and no one else's. Don't share your allegiance with anyone or anything else. Offer yourself fully like a living sacrifice. That is the kind of person that the Spirit fills and use and I and I tell you what you don't need specific giftings you don't need a certain academic pedigree you don't need a certain charisma or ability you don't need to be young or old but if you are God's fully he will fill you with his spirit and will use you in amazing ways Francis Schaeffer, who was kind of a Christian intellectual, started this kind of, honestly, Honestly, it was like a Christian hippie commune in Switzerland called the Labrie, which means the shelter in French. Um, he has a, 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 a podium of some of his sermons called No Little People, and it's fantastic. But he has one sermon where he uh, looks at the calling of Moses when he's called by God to lead Israel out of slavery. And if you remember the story, God appears in this burning bush, which should be enough to, you know, Anyways, Moses is still like, no, 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 I don't think I'm competent. I can't do this. I'm not able. Israel's not going to listen to me. I've been gone 40 years. I don't, I don't know the people anymore. And so God's like, okay, well, if you won't go, I'm going to call your staff. And so he gives his staff magical abilities. I mean, that's a weird way to say it. But all of a sudden, Moses' staff overwhelms all the Egyptian magicians. If you remember that, they're all turned to the serpents. But Moses' staff eats the, 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 the magician's staffs. And then God uses the staff to bring various plagues on Egypt. He uses the staff to divide the Red Sea. At one point, the staff is used to bring water from a rock. And as Francis Schaeffer says in this way, he says, Exodus 4.20 tells us the secret of everything that followed, of all the deliverance of Israel. The staff of Moses had become the staff of God. Because literally in Exodus 4.20, as Moses is getting up to go to Egypt to obey God, it says he grabbed his family and everything and got up to the left and took with him the staff of God. And so this dead piece of wood, which had previously been the staff of Moses, becomes the staff of God. And God can still use a piece of wood that is wholly his to deliver his people. How much more can he use you or his beloved child, if you will be fully his, if you will not be the Mike of whatever, but rather Mike who is fully the Lord's, fully offered up to him, fully consecrated. It's a good practice just to take time occasionally on a regular basis and some silence and solitude and just go through the parts of our lives. Go through your career, your studies, go through your family, go through your possessions. And everything offered up to the Lord, God is yours. It doesn't mean He'll take it away from you. God's not like some psycho. Who's like takes joy in just depriving us of stuff. But taking time where we take a, an inventory of our life, we just offer it up to God. God, I'm offering my life, all that I have, my relationships, what I care for most. It is yours. Use it how you will. That's the kind of vessel the Spirit can fill and use. And again, it doesn't matter if you're like talented or wealthy or famous, or if you're young or old, it doesn't matter. It matters more if you are the Lord's or not. So That's the first thing we can do to make ourselves a fit vessel for a filling of the Holy Spirit is consecration, offering ourselves up to God. The second thing is regular repentance. We make war on our sin. We don't, we don't, play truce with what is sinful. Now we got to be careful when we talk about repentance because we don't make war on our sins so that God will love us more. We make war on our sin because God has loved us. He is the pro- he, we were the prodigal son and he is the father who loved us when we were out wasting his inheritance. When we were dead in our sins that is when God said, "You are my beloved." We don't don't put death, we don't put sin to death so that God will love us more. We do it because God has already loved us and although he already loved us and he will love us and guess what, he won't love you more if you repent of sin, but your experience of his love will change if you repent of sin. Your experience of his nearness, of his spirit, your ability to be filled with the spirit, that very much depends on how we handle our sin. And so we make war on our sin. We put it to death. We take no prisoners. And that, again, is a type of vessel that the Spirit can fill. So consecration, regular repentance. And the last one is pursuing faith, hope, and love. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love passage, which is in the middle of him talking about the role of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, he says spiritual gifts are gonna one day end. But what will abide forever is faith, hope, and and love. These are the things that God cares about through all eternity. It's what he wants most for his people. And so if we're going to be, again, vessels that are fit for a filling of the Holy Spirit, then that's something we're going to long for and pray for and pursue, to be people who are marked by faith, hope, and love, to be a church that's marked, again, by faith, trusting God's promises, that he is speaking truth when he speaks to us hope in the resurrection of the dead. We're not afraid of death. We realize that all this world will one day end, our hope is in the resurrection of the dead. And then love, love for one another and love for our neighbor. And as we become people who are marked by faith, hope and love, again, we become vessels that are more fit for filling of the Holy Spirit. Again, if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, You have the Spirit of God. And what that means is that there is infinite potential in any Christian. It doesn't matter how backslidden you might be, how much of a back row Baptist someone might be. If you have the Spirit of God, oh, look out! There is an infinite potential for him to grab a hold of your heart, make you his own. That being said, we can be filled with more of the Spirit and less of the Spirit. So pursue a greater greater filling of the Spirit. Spirit, don't be content with what you have experienced so far. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. Regularly repent. Seek faith, hope, and love, because we can be filled with more of the Spirit. But then our third and final truth about the Holy Spirit is that we always need renewal by the Spirit. We always need renewal. There's a growing emphasis in kind of church circles uh, towards what's called church revitalization, so in contrast to church planting, where you're trying to start something new where there isn't a church, church revitalization is to go into a church that is not doing well and try to shore it up, try to bring growth, renewal, revival, these kinds of things. And, and I, think this is, I think this is a really needed emphasis. Uh, a few years ago, I was meeting with a staff member of the Louisville Regional Baptist Association. That's the Baptist Association in Louisville, obviously, from the name. And I was meeting with a staff member, and he was actually the... Uh, church revitalization consultant. He told me there are 150 churches that affiliate in Louisville. And he said, based on his experience with working with a lot of these churches, he was concerned that as many as half could close their doors in 10 years. 75 Baptist churches in Louisville could close their doors in the next 10 years. That's an astronomical loss for the gospel in in the city of Louisville. There's a saturation of neighborhoods that is permanently, irrevocably lost that can't be replaced by two or three megachurches in the suburbs or even a megachurch in the city. Because i tell you what, no megachurch that's even within a mile of here is gonna reach this street like we will. So I agree. there's a great need for it. And of course, I'm biased, right? I pastor a small church. I'm biased. But even my bias aside, I really believe in the strategic nature of small churches implanted in communities. Because again, we don't live in a time where people go to church. But if they have a relationship with someone... They, they walk by our building, and at least they're being reminded, hey, there's this, there's this God, and there's these people who worship this Jesus. Like, I believe in the strategic nature of small churches spread throughout, not just us all congregating in a couple big megachurches. So I like the emphasis, but I have a bone to pick. And that is this, the kind of unspoken assumption that it's only small or declining churches that need Renewal. At the end of the day, the way the Bible treats it is that we all need renewal. Everyone, regularly. Again, Romans 12, verses one to two, we read verses one, but we're gonna look at verses two as well. But it says this, it says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is not a letter written to the small churches of the world, it's written to the church universal, the church throughout the ages. And he says all of you, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's not a once and done, like oh we went through a revitalization in 1980s and now we're good forever. It's again and again and again. Be renewed, be transformed. Because the spiritual life is kind of like this. It's kind of like if you want to throw a baseball to Lexington. Okay, if there was like no atmosphere and no friction, I could throw a baseball from here and it would continue until it hit Lexington. But because there is air molecules and friction, if you throw it, as soon as you let go of the ball, it will begin to decrease speed. And it, and its tendency, as you throw that baseball, is going to be to slow down as it hits the ground to stop and stop moving, unless you pick it up and throw it again. That's how the spiritual life works. Because we live in a world of friction, we live in a world where there's sin, the flesh, the devil, there are things that are conspiring, there's our own weakness, our own ignorance, our own you know, we- bodily weaknesses. Like The tendency in the spiritual life is to slow down and to stop. And so to say, well, I had a revival in the 80s, I'm good, is the silliest thing. Well, I threw the baseball once. It's going to get to Lexington. No, it won't. Not unless someone picks it up and throws it again. And that's the way the Christian life works. It's every day we're being renewed. Because the tendency is towards complacency, towards stopping. We always are in need of renewal by the Spirit. And I tell you what, you can find spiritual complacency as easily at a a big church as you can at a little church. Makes no difference. We all need spiritual renewal. And the thing about spiritual renewal is that it is a work of God's spirit. It's interesting in that Romans passage, it says, be transformed. It does not say transform yourselves. That's like saying, well, I can't think of an analogy on the spot. Anyways, it's saying be transformed, someone else has got to do this work for you. It says, well, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, okay. But the ultimate actor in this equation is God Himself. And in fact, the New Living Translation translates it that way. I think they get it great says, "Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think." We are in constant need of the Spirit of God to renew us and transform us, because like a baseball, we slow down, we grow complacent, we go tired, we go discouraged, we grow bored. We need God to transform us. Of course, we're not passive, right? We consecrate ourselves, we repent of sin, we pursue faith, hope, and love. But at the end of the day, this is a work of God's Spirit. We cannot, a baseball cannot pick itself up and throw itself. It needs to be thrown. We cannot renew ourselves. We need to be renewed by God's spirit. And that is why prayer is so central to the life of the Christian and the life of the church. We pray individually for personal needs. God wants to hear our needs, yes. But how often do we pray just that God would renew us would give us a deeper love for him, would, would, would make us so we can say, with Paul, I count everything a loss compared to knowing Christ. It just is. We need to pray for that, because again, I, I can't renew myself. You can't renew yourself. God's spirit is the only one that can take a heart of stone and make a heart of flesh. And if you're a Christian, he's done it to you already, and he wants to continue to form you and mold you and renew you. But we gotta ask him, individually, but also as a church. We can't renew ourselves as a church. And again, it's not a criticism of a church to say we need renewal. Every church needs renewal. Just like it's not a criticism to say, hey, you're gonna have to throw that baseball again if you wanna get to Lexington. Well, no, as soon as you throw the baseball, it starts slowing down. That's what happens. That's what happens in every church. Again, as doesn't matter. If we could be at 300 people and growing, we would need renewal. But again, prayer is so important. And that's why prayer meetings are so important. We don't just do it for tradition. We do it because there is great power. There is spiritual power. When Christians come together, not just to eat good meals or to have fun or to fellowship, but just to seek God's face, to seek his renewal, to offer our lives up corporately to him. Man, when you get Christians together and to do that, there is power. We may not see that power, and so we assume nothing important is really happening. And so we don't go. Oh, that is how the kingdom of God advances. That is how the gates of hell are overrun. It's when God's people get together and say, we're gonna seek God's face together. Spirit, come and renew us. One measure of the healthiness, one measure of the healthiness of a Christian is their prayer life. But similarly, one measure of the healthiness of a church is its prayer meetings. We do a monthly prayer meeting. I just gotta say, we need each other to go to these. Like I could show up by myself and sure, God is sovereign. He could use me. Only, it's never just been me, praise God. But just say, once I, when it was me, just me. God could use that, right? But if we want to bring renewal to the church, like we need each other to be there. We need each other to commit to come to prayer meetings. It doesn't matter how we feel. It doesn't matter if we're, if we're tired. It doesn't matter if we have work. Like it's once a month, We all got an hour once a month to come together and seek God's renewal of our hearts and ourselves. I encourage you to commit this spring. We'll start up in February. It'll be the first Sunday of the month. Commit to making it to those prayer meetings because, man, that is so important. As we're in this waiting period of waiting for the second advent of Jesus, his return, one of the great gifts that he's given us as his church is his spirit The God who is categorically different from us has come nearer to us than our own skin. He's poured himself into our lives. So no matter where you go, God himself goes with you. His spirit speaks words of comfort and assurance. He strengthens and establishes you in your faith. He empowers you for ministry. Sometimes he confronts you when you need it. And if you have trusted in Jesus, the amazing news is that you have that spirit dwelling in you. But at the same time, we can be filled with more. We can have more of the Holy Spirit to be equipped for greater ministry, for greater faith, hope, and love, for a deeper love of our Lord, for greater usefulness in his kingdom. So run after the Spirit. Pursue his filling. And until Jesus returns, we will always need the Spirit to renew us every day. Let me pray. Christ, I pray by your infinite mercy that you will continue to send your spirit to renew us, to fill us, to equip us, empower us. God, you know, you know we're not the biggest church in Louisville. Maybe we're not the most impressive. But we are people bought by your the blood of your son, people who have the very spirit of God dwelling in us. As a church, we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. Let us not be content. Let us yearn for a closer walk with our Lord, for a deeper filling of his spirit, for a greater consecration to offer all our lives up to the Lord of life. May you do that. May you renew us. May you refresh us. May you revitalize us for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.